You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Charges are being recommended in connection with a disturbing theft uncovered by a woman who recently installed a security camera in her home. She lives in a secure condo building in downtown Vancouver. And the alleged culprit, not someone the tenant would have ever expected. Sarah McDonald has this Global News exclusive. He enters the suite with an eerie familiarity. Seemingly so comfortable, you might think he has permission to be inside it. But watch as the concierge at this downtown Vancouver condo building slips on gloves and begins rifling through the belongings of the woman who lives here. Appearing to inspect an envelope on her dresser before carefully opening a drawer and pocketing an item inside it. Well, my cleaner was there and I had left um, some cash for her in my underwear drawer and she called me and told me that she couldn't find the money. So she checked the footage recorded by a motion-activated camera while waiting to catch a flight half a world away. And what she saw has now sparked a police investigation. I literally dropped my phone to the ground and just started hysterically crying. He went through uh, my underwear drawer, my makeup drawer. He basically knew every single one of my hiding spots. Vancouver police confirm a 48-year-old suspect has since been arrested in connection to this case. But his identity is not being released, since the recommended charge of theft under $5,000 is still pending approval. At the time of the incident last Wednesday, that suspect was employed by a prominent Vancouver concierge and security firm, CMI. The company telling Global News in a statement it is cooperating with police and reinforcing its policies and training with its staff. But experts say incidents like this are more common than you might expect. We get a lot of reports about this, about people who come home and things are not the way they were and they, and they suddenly realize that the caretaker or a council member or a property manager has keys. That's why it's recommended tenants and homeowners only leave a spare set of keys with a trusted third party, if at all. And unless you are confident everything is above board... Change your locks and don't give your keys to anybody else. Advice the victim of an alleged thief caught on camera says she'll be taking as soon as she returns from vacation abroad. I do not want to ever live there again. Though she may not be calling this same place home once she does. Sarah McDonald, Global News. RCMP are resuming their search today for a Merritt cowboy who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. That search centers on the Nicola Ranch, where Ben Tyner worked right up until he disappeared at the end of January. Ground crews, assisted by the RCMP police dog service and air support teams, are carefully going over the property. Jordan Armstrong explains why RCMP are retracing some of their steps. An RCMP command post and several dozen officers converging on the feedlot of Nicola Ranch near Merritt. Police do a careful grid search and dig in a compost pile as they ramp up their investigation in the disappearance of Ben Tyner. Though not officially a recovery operation, it's looking that way. And we are still hopeful that we will find Ben's remains. You know, after having been out in elements for now over almost four months, it is unlikely, but not you know, we, we have to hold out some hope. But why are officers looking here? Officially, they say, areas previously covered by snow are now being searched a second time, and that no one has been arrested or charged in the case. 
There's no update with respect to the investigation. Uh, the investigation remains a priority and is active and ongoing. Tyner, the 32-year-old manager of Nicola Ranch, was last seen January 26th. Two days later, his horse Gunny was discovered by a local hunter. That prompted a week-long search from 19 search-and-rescue teams and a tearful appeal from the man's family, who flew to Merritt from Wyoming. If you have any information that can lead to us finding him, no matter how insignificant it might seem, we would be so truly grateful. Police won't predict how long the renewed search might last, nor where it could move to next. Tyner was relatively new to the area, arriving in Merritt from the U.S. just three months before he vanished. We're hoping that we can find Ben, whether alive or his remains and his recovery, uh, recover his body, and then that will help to advance the investigation. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A bed and breakfast owner from Blaine, Washington, appeared in a Surrey courtroom today. The Smugglers Inn sits basically right on the border on Zero Avenue, and it's alleged Robert Boulay used his property to illegally sneak multiple people into Canada. Grace Key was in court today and has more on the charges. Robert Boulay was in court today for a bail hearing. Now, because of a publication ban, we are not able to report on much of what went on in court. Now, he is facing 21 charges under the Immigration Act for allegedly helping seven people sneak illegally into Canada. The alleged offenses date from May of 2018 to March 8th of this year. The counts also include breaches of court orders from previous charges. He's been running the bed and breakfast is called Smugglers Inn there on Zero Avenue in Blaine for several years now. Now, a friend of his from Bellingham did appear in court today to listen to the proceedings, and he describes Boulay as an active member in the community. Bob is a pillar of the community. He is straight and narrow. Bob, uh, Bob, uh, you, you could give Bob your gold chain and your watch and chain and you could come back the next week and it would be there and he'd give it back to you. These charges have not been proven in court yet. Boulay remains in custody here in Canada and the judge will be coming back with a decision on April 25th. In Surrey, Grace Key, Global News. Two men facing multiple drug trafficking and weapons charges in connection with a high-profile fentanyl case are free to walk. After a judge ruled, Vancouver police violated their rights on a number of occasions. Ramina Dea is live in our newsroom with the details on this. Ramina, the judge ruling that police made some serious mistakes. Multiple breaches, according to the judge, Chris. And as a result, all charges were dropped against Dennis Alexander Halstead and Jason James Heyman in connection to the VPD's seven-month-long investigation dubbed Project Trooper. Now, officers seized $1.8 million in drugs, including 23,000 fentanyl pills, cocaine, heroin, plus guns, according to the evidence from 2015. Now, six people were charged Halstead and Heyman considered the masterminds. They were charged with multiple offenses for trafficking and firearms. But in a pre-trial decision, Justice Williams ruled their charter of rights were breached. The accused were 
violated, their, their charter rights violated on several fronts, including the police set up video surveillance for months without a warrant. The judge ruled officers conducted an unreasonable search by swabbing vehicles and homes also without a warrant and had improperly obtained passport photos. This is the correct decision. The difficulty, obviously, is when we are looking at it and thinking about uh, fentanyl dealers. And, uh, you know, many people would think that we shouldn't provide these people with any rights. But, um, you know, we, we're, we're not um, enhancing the uh, perception of the justice system if we're allowing the police to trample on charter rights. We have a now, the VPD not commenting on the case Project Trooper, not a total loss. Two of the accused's co-defendants have both pleaded guilty to possession for the purpose of trafficking and are awaiting sentencing. Chris. All right. Thanks for the update, Romina. RCMP are looking for dash cam and surveillance video in connection with a fatal shooting in Surrey. It happened at a townhouse complex. The victim died at the scene. It's just the latest in a series of shootings that have ricocheted across Metro Vancouver in recent weeks. Nadia Stewart has more on what investigators are saying about the surge in gun violence. It was like a machine gun. It just went off, went and looked out the window. It was, it was, it was pretty bad. It is the latest shooting in a Surrey neighborhood. I woke up um, in the middle of the night. I heard gunshots and um, tires screeching after. I um, rolled off bed and uh, ducked for cover. It happened just before midnight on Tuesday. The sound of gunshots could be heard in the 13,900 block of 72nd Avenue in Surrey. Several neighbors calling 911. Police arrived to find a man fatally wounded. Right now I can tell you that nothing, uh, we've uh, looked through our police records, our databases, and uh, I can tell you that he was not known to police. I hit still trying to figure out a motive and track down the driver of a vehicle seen speeding from the scene. It was ditched and set on fire near 164th Street and 92nd Avenue. It's just reasonable to believe that anyone that's out shooting people would be uh, trying to um, eliminate evidence. And that's what we believe with respect to that car fire. A fire that woke neighbors just after midnight. So I didn't know what was going on until this morning I seen them, the police car there. Within less than an hour, two neighborhoods found themselves caught in the middle. Since March 10th, there have been eight shootings, one in Chilliwack, another in Richmond and North Vancouver, not to mention multiple incidents in Surrey. Police would not say whether they believe the incidents are drug or gang related or if they're all even connected. For now, police are appealing for witnesses and dash cam video, while neighbors are hoping they don't have to wake up to scenes like this again. I know Newton is known for, for, for gang violence, but I just didn't expect it to be this close. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Here's a look at the next steps Surrey will be taking in its transition to a municipal police force. According to an internal memo, the transition will take place in four phases if approved by the province. Phase one is already underway with a strategic plan. The second phase will begin in July with a focus on recruitment. Phase three involves getting senior management and other key personnel in place by next January. The final phase will see the rollout in July of 2020 in parallel with the end of the RCMP contract. 
Efforts to protect B.C.'s dwindling caribou population are not going over very well with everyone in the Peace River region. The province and the federal government want more restrictions in the backcountry, but stakeholders say it will lead to a major loss of forestry jobs, and they want the province to listen. Keith Baldry reports. That stack of papers in B.C. Liberal MLA Mike Bernier's hands represent the signatures of more than 35,000 people worried about job loss in the north as a result of the NDP government's tentative plan to protect the mountain caribou. This is the first nail in the coffin for rural B.C. under this government because if they shut down this area, they're going to continue looking at other areas of the province. Governments of various stripes have been struggling for years to devise a strategy to protect the B.C. mountain caribou, which are vulnerable to fatal attacks by wolf packs. Local residents say the current plan is to greatly reduce the annual allowable cut of timber in the Peace River region to thwart wolf movements via logging roads. That, they say, will result in huge job losses in the forestry sector. By the government's own estimates, uh, we've been hearing the job losses in around the 500 range. Um, near as I can figure it, that's probably pushing half half of the jobs in my community will be gone. A delegation of civic officials from the Peace River region visited the legislature today to drop off their petition. Part of the problem, they say, is that government officials in Victoria are out of touch with regional concerns. They're shoving something down our throat that we don't believe is fundamentally correct. So I don't think it's political, I think it's ignorance. The issue spilled into question period, with the B.C. Liberals accusing the NDP government of ramming through a plan that has no local support. Victoria-driven regulations imposed down on these without the engagement, without the studying and work uh, and considerations for the people in the communities, it's not a good approach. These are all events and situations uh, that needed to be uh, considered in any review or amendments uh, under uh, the Forest and Range uh, Practices Act. And it was never done, Honourable Speaker. It was meant to be done. It was never done. As on so many issues, the NDP government's response so far is that this is a problem that has existed for years and can't be fixed overnight. All right, Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Keith, we've seen this before, that rural-urban electoral divide. Yeah, and it's certainly more pronounced, more than ever, as a result of the, res uh, the results in the 2017 election. Uh, the NDP really focused on Metro Vancouver. The B.C. Liberals are uh, much more representative uh, around the, the province. In terms of numbers, uh, take a look at this, a reminder of who makes up government here in Victoria. Just five of the, the 44 NDP green seats are outside of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. It's a very small proportion. To contrast that to the B.C. Liberals, almost half of their caucus comes from outside of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Today, I think we witnessed in the legislature a sort of disconnect between, I think, a government focus on the seats that got him elected into power, which is basically suburban Vancouver, perhaps not so much focused on the rest of the province. We'll see if Mike Bernier is right, whether this is just a sign of things to come. All right, Keith, thanks for that. But first, when the province rolled out its requirements for future ride-hailing services, one point of contention was that all drivers would need to have a Class 4 license, just like taxi drivers. The province says it's to protect passengers, but Global News dug up data that shows it's not really the safety issue the province is making it out to be. Taxi drivers need a Class 4 license. So do small passenger bus drivers, even paramedics. And in the fall, when ride-hailing is set to launch, so will Uber drivers. All in the name of safety. You need to make sure that you have the safest possible license, and for us at the moment, that's a Class 4. Stats compiled by ICBC don't show that. While just a fraction of drivers on the road have a Class 4 license, the collision rates seem to be about the same as Class 5. 
between 2012 and 2016, Class 4 drivers caused about one less collision per 100 drivers. The data isn't a direct comparison. It doesn't account for time behind the wheel or kilometers driven, but the basic idea indicates the difference is statistically irrelevant. At the end of the day, this is political. The NDP is using the Class 4 issue to, to build a system that they want to see to keep taxi owners happy. The Legislative Committee struck to map out a framework for ride hailing has strongly suggested an enhanced Class 5 would be enough. Safety, medical and criminal background checks could all be done without a special license. Ride-hailing advocates are hoping these ICBC numbers will change some minds. What we want to do is work with the Minister to make Class 5 different and customize it around ride-sharing for British Columbia. Class 4 makes sure that you have to have a good driving record and you've got to maintain a good driving record. You've got to have uh, medical checks. You've got to do an extra driving test. You've got to show your knowledge of, of the vehicle. This is an extra standard above a Class 5. Ride-hailing legislation expected in the fall. Uber and Lyft could begin operations as early as the end of 2019. Both companies have said it will be difficult to operate here under the expected rules. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. With the tax deadline quickly approaching, it's high season for scammers posing as Canada Revenue Agency employees. Fraudsters claiming to be from the taxation agency continue to contact unsuspecting Canadians and mislead them into paying fake debts. There's so much fear out there, many people assume any communication from the CRA is suspect. Officials say the CRA will never threaten you with arrest or demand immediate payment by Interact, e-transfer, Bitcoin, prepaid credit cards or gift cards. Don't be scared of the tax department. Um, you know, we're all good people here. Um, when we call, we're polite, we're courteous, we're professional. Um, and if you know that you have not done anything wrong, if you get an email, if you get a text, uh, or even if you get a phone call, uh, don't be alarmed, don't be scared, just pick up the phone and call us. Well, the province is moving to phase out gas-powered vehicles. Under legislation introduced today, all new cars and trucks sold in B.C. must be zero emission by 2040. We should point out that's light-duty trucks. But as Richard Zisman reports, the question is, how do we get there? It's not your typical ministerial vehicle. Energy Minister Michelle Mungall and Environment Minister George Heyman going for a zero-emission ride sending a message to car companies. We want to show uh, the manufacturers that the demand is there. Mungal introducing legislation today. When passed, BC will ban the sale of new gas guzzlers starting in 2040. 2040, 100% of new light duty vehicle sales will be electric. If you look on a car dealership lot, you can see vehicles ranging from compacts to pickup trucks, a selection not yet available in electric form. A lot of it comes down to the, the automakers just um, changing what their product offerings are and, and providing them, uh, you know, electric. There is some hope. Ford is testing an electric F-150, the popular pickup truck. Another issue, powering up. Old homes and condo buildings aren't always equipped with chargers, and the province is unwilling to mandate new builds to require them. Condo developments are doing it uh, voluntarily because, again, the demand for electric vehicles is going up. The province's new rules will be phased in over time. By 2025, 10% of new vehicles sold must be electric, 
and by 2030, it's 30%. The government is offering up to $5,000 in incentives to British Columbians who want to buy a new zero-emission vehicle. But the Liberals warn that could lead to problems. How do we move forward and actually hit those targets uh, without uh, essentially uh, bankrupting uh, the coffers at the same time? The legislation is similar to what Quebec and California are doing. Now all these jurisdictions trying to figure out how to ensure the road to zero emissions isn't too bumpy for consumers. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, when it comes to wine tastes, turns out if you like the label, you're more likely to like what's inside the bottle. That's according to research from UBC Okanagan master's student Darson Esau, who's studying the branding and design of wine labels. He says people are more likely to enjoy a wine if the label on the bottle matches their personal identity. And it can actually influence what you think of the taste. It doesn't matter what wine we put in the glass, if we mix and match the labels in the wine, so long as you identify with those visual cues, you'll think the wine tastes better. Certain things can have a perceived value. Uh, you know, if you look at the French wines per se, they might have an image of a, a chateau on the, on the label that uh, automatically, subconsciously, I think, in your brain will make you think, oh, this is, this is fancy. Esau's research involved online surveys and blind taste tests. I feel like it needs um, more testing. What a struggle. We should, really? we should test it out. Volunteer? <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. A gas explosion rocked Durham, North Carolina's downtown this morning. At least one person was killed and more than a dozen others injured, including a firefighter. The incident began as a gas leak after contractors hit a natural gas line while drilling. Firefighters had time to evacuate much of the area before the blast, which triggered a fire and partial building collapse. The fire has since been contained. Donald Trump is lashing out again, blasting the Russia investigation as an attempted coup against his presidency. His own attorney general also making some explosive remarks, saying he believes the Trump campaign was spied on. Tonight, with the expected release of the Mueller report just days away, President Trump taking perhaps his strongest shots yet at the origins of the Russia investigation. This was a an attempted this was an attempted takedown of a president, and we beat them. We beat them. Every single thing about it. There were dirty cops. These were bad people. We asked, has the report been sent to him? Have you seen it? I have not seen the Mueller report. I have not read the Mueller report. I won. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care about the Mueller report. For months, the president and his supporters have argued the Russia probe began with illegal surveillance during his campaign. They spied on me. They spied on our campaign. Who would think that's possible? Now, in a remarkable moment, this from his attorney general today, who says he'll review how it all started. I think spying did occur. Well, let me... The uh, question is whether it was predicated adequately predicated and i'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated but i'd need to explore that it comes as republicans have criticized the fbi leadership back in 2016 as biased against candidate trump and as the justice department's inspector general is looking into how surveillance warrants were obtained against a former trump campaign advisor but tonight democrats taking aim at Barr's comments that sets off red flags everywhere. It was deeply disturbing to see the attorney general make such a cavalier suggestion that they were spying on the Trump campaign. A New York couple who disappeared in the Dominican Republic is now feared dead. 
Police say they've found two bodies that could be the American pair who went missing in the Caribbean nation late last month. Orlando Moore and his girlfriend Portia Ravenel were supposed to return from their vacation March 27th, but they never made their flight. Authorities say evidence suggests the U.S. citizens were victims of a car crash as they drove to the airport, which sent their vehicle into the water. Less than a month after a shooting attack targeting two Christchurch mosques killed 50 people, New Zealand approved new gun laws today. Because these weapons were designed to kill. All but one member of that country's parliament voting in favor. The gun reform bill must now receive royal assent from the governor general before it becomes law. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says she couldn't understand how weapons that could cause destruction and death could be obtained legally in New Zealand. Mr. Speaker, we are ultimately here because 15, 50 people died and they do not have a voice. We in this House are their voice. And today, Mr. Speaker, we have used that voice wisely. A 28-year-old suspected white supremacist was charged with 50 counts of murder after the March attack. He'll be back in court in June. In Health Matters tonight, 100,000 people have signed a petition demanding changes to the way we care for the 400,000 Canadian seniors living with dementia. As Linda Aylesworth reports, the call for action was sparked by a Vancouver man who says his mother's 2017 hospital visit turned into a traumatic event. That's my mom and I. Um, I'd say she's definitely, you know, in the Alzheimer's zone at this point. Soon after this photo was taken, Patricia Craven was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Things like meal preparation and just, you know, basic organization was starting to falter a little bit. The symptoms progressed, as they do. Then two years ago, when she became particularly confused, her son Aaron took her to St. Paul's emergency. And after about 10 hours, she started to become a little disoriented, wanted to leave. I was there with her the whole time. Hospital staff tried to give her an oral sedative. When she refused... They forced her into a four-point restraint uh, with her kicking and screaming and uh, disrobed her against her will, and um, it was a pretty traumatic incident for her. Armed with photos of the resulting bruises, Aaron launched a complaint with the hospital. He reached out to the city as well. And the last step I did uh, was I launched a petition through change.org uh, asking for uh, different practices in the way hospitals admit dementia patients. It's confusing, it's concerning, it's very, con it's not a, a good place at all. The Alzheimer's Society agrees that the commotion in emergency departments is the last thing a distressed person with dementia needs. What would be ideal is if everyone understood how to approach a person with dementia. And a separate admissions process for dementia patients, patients so that they're not just lumped in with the general populace. Both federal and provincial governments are currently working on a new dementia care policy. Aaron's suggestion? They need to listen to the caregivers more, and that's part of what I've been advocating for with um, policymakers. We need to be ensuring that people with dementia and their families and caregivers are part of that conversation. They know what they need, they know what's missing, and we need to listen to them. And so far, over 100,000 Canadians agree and have signed Aaron's petition. I've tried to take uh, what's happening with my mom and, and all the trauma around that and turn it into positive public force. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Scientists are drooling over the first ever photograph of a black hole today. Giving us a glimpse of a bizarre celestial object that's captivated our imagination for more than a century. The long-anticipated image revealing what had been unseeable.
Look closely. Until today, no one had ever seen this before. That is a black hole called M87, some 55 million light years away. What Albert Einstein predicted 100 years ago is in fact true. They are real monsters. They are real beasts. It's the one place in the universe where we can go but not come back. And that is terrifying. Surrounding the black hole is a swirling disk of super-hot plasma. The blackness is the point of no return, where gas, stars, and even light are sucked inside, and no one knows what lies beyond. To find M87, scientists linked a network of telescopes around the world to create a massively powerful array the size of Earth itself, the black hole nearly the size of our entire solar system. Their findings part of the Smithsonian documentary Friday Night. It was just astonishment, I think, and wonder. A distant part of the universe once science fiction, now science fact. A sunny day at the skate park. After Christie's forecast, what sent people running for cover? A meteorological anomaly. Let's just put it that way. And uh, let's check in with Christy right now to see if there are any anomalies in our forecast. Christy? Fresh snow on the mountains, which is nice to see. A little cool and wet across our region, but we're seeing some breaks of, like, breaks of blue sky right now. But uh, yeah, it was a little cool, and here's why. Jet stream driving north of us and then plummeting just across the south coast. Northwest flow, keeping things cool, dropping that freezing level. But great news for the local mountains. Yeah, the ski season is not over. This is Mount Seymour today. 10 centimeters of snow there. I saw six centimeters in much of the interior mountains. So it had me thinking, with more more snowpack because we have had rain in the last little while. Where are we at? Well, here's a look. This is using Mission Creek in the interior as an example. Uh, last year is this green line way above normal snowpack. This pink area is a historical average, and this is where we're at right now. So we are about 79 on average, 79% of normal snowpack. And that is good news, but potentially means a reduced flood risk, uh, meaning uh, this line here is is about mid-April where we tend to see the max snow that we're going to get in the snow in the actual snowpack. So we're not too far away from that. We're about a week away from uh, gaining that max amount of snow. But of course, it's the last two months. It's the May and June months that also play a huge role when we look at the flood risk. And when we look at the outlook in terms of warmth, we are going to be or we're expecting to be above normal according to the long-range forecast by Environment Canada right across the province. But in terms of precipitation across southern BC, we're looking at near normal precipitation, and it's both the moisture and the uh, the um, heat that plays a huge uh, role in the flood scenario. And we've got more moisture that's on the way in the short term, but we're still looking pretty good for our Friday, everyone. So key in on that Friday. Across the north, breaks of sunshine. Across the south, you will see showers by the afternoon. For our region, it will be wet tomorrow, especially in the afternoon. Friday looking sunny, but as we head into the weekend, we cool off off and the temperatures or and the moisture pushes back in and i'll leave you with a gorgeous shot from ladner thanks to rob mclean oh beautiful lovely thank you christy and rob well now back to that skate park in northern california it was like any other perfect sunny tuesday afternoon until a wild wind event captured on surveillance video it shows what appears to be skateboards being picked up by the dust devil and launched across the pavement. Oh. Roofing material also ripped off the building and was thrown into the air. Some rushed for cover. Others could be seen trying to stay on their feet. 
Thankfully, no one was hurt, but wow, pretty wild in that moment. Yikes. For hockey fans, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's pretty good. Keep going. No, no. Oh, come on. That's all you get. That's all you get from me tonight. All right. I don't think he knows <laughs> well, most of the words. I, yeah, but he had to make it up. We could do that, you know. We could write up a little, some lyrics for you. Yeah. NHL playoffs are underway. Big upset already. Five of eight series beginning tonight. Tampa Bay lost 4-3 in game one to Columbus, despite having a 3-0 first period lead. Okay. One of the other series starting tonight is Vegas and San Jose, which means Evander Kane will play a big role for the Sharks. And he is someone who needed time to properly mature as an NHL player. He had ups and downs in his career, but now he has found a home in San Jose. And the Sharks are glad they gave him a chance when a lot of other teams wouldn't have. Not only has Evander Kane endeared himself to San Jose Sharks fans, he's become a key piece on a Sharks squad that's once again in the mix for the Stanley Cup. In his first full season with the Sharks, Kane matched his career high in goals with 30. You know, ever since I got traded here uh, last year, um, it's kind of been a seamless transition for me, and uh, it's been an organization that uh, you know has treated me very well. And um, I've obviously enjoyed my time uh, here last year, and, and obviously re-signed here for a long time. Laying down roots in San Jose is something Kane didn't do in his time with Buffalo and Winnipeg. Forget about wearing up the welcome mat in those cities; he pretty much torched it. In Buffalo, he faced assault charges after a nightclub incident. Those charges were later dropped following a plea agreement. But it's his time in Winnipeg and how it ended there that had his own teammates openly question his character after Kane violated the team's dress policy by showing up in a tracksuit, which led to him being a healthy scratch and then eventually being traded. There's a standard that everyone needs to live up to. We're professionals. We make a lot of money, and um, we're, we're, we're expected to uphold a certain standard, and, uh, you know, that, that's the code we live by. And... Um, you know, that's just the way it is. You know, if you don't like it, then then there's other places to go. This is the way we this is the way we do things. Be it making good on a third chance or just growing up and maturing as a person, it appears the 27-year-old has finally figured it out. This is Evander's 10th NHL season and arguably his best to win the Stanley Cup. When you watch him play, tell me you don't see a guy who's willing to do whatever it takes to win it all. He's one of maybe two or three guys, Tom Wilson maybe being one, um, you know, who combine the ability to score 30 goals and, and are heavyweight tough and keep, keep everybody else honest. All the other stuff, um, I don't want to say it's overblown. I think he's the first to admit he's made mistakes as, a, as he's matured into the NHL player he is today, both on and off the ice, but... Uh, you know, he's a different guy than, than what I've, you know, read about uh, prior to him coming here. His first National Hockey League hat-trick for Evander Kane! Okay, one of his old teams, not the St. Louis Blues, the Winnipeg Jets. Was there a fire in the hallway there? Anyway, Jets and Blues game one. Patrick Laine, who didn't have a great regular season, but a great shot there. And after two periods, the Jets are up 1-0 at home in Game 1. Oh, Vancouver Giants are now up 3-0 in their series with the Victoria Royals. Owen Hardy had the overtime goal last night. Giants win this Game 5-4. Game 4 is tomorrow in Victoria if the Giants win. They're off to round number 3. Also tomorrow, the Masters begins, and the betting favorite is Rory McIlroy. And the Masters is the one major he has never won. But given that he has finished in the top 10 at the Masters five years in a row, he certainly is comfortable playing at Augusta National. 
this is my 11th year here. If I haven't figured it out by now, is something something wrong? Um, I'm like, I, yeah, I'm I'm very comfortable with with this golf course. I think one of the the great things about this course is it forces you to be creative. Bounce it just short of the green with some spin. Rory McIlroy makes three at the eighth. I would dearly love to win this tournament one day. If it doesn't happen this week, that's totally fine. I'll come back next year and, and I'll have another crack at it. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where, where everything is. Body, mind, game. That's Sergio Garcia's daughter, Azalea. Sergio gives her the ball. Is she caddying? She is caddying. She's checking out. See, she's checking out the weight of the ball, the, the cut of the green. She'll give her dad some pointers. 19-year-old uh, Devin Bling, great name. Devin Bling from UCLA in the par-3 contest. He didn't win the par-3 contest, but he'll never forget this moment. And he'll play in the tournament this week as an amateur. Matt Wallace won the par-3 contest. Magic Johnson has made himself disappear from the L.A. Lakers front office, quitting as the president of basketball operations, basically because it wasn't fun anymore and he didn't want his relationship with team owner Jeannie Buss to unravel because of all the Lakers losing, despite having LeBron James. But still, for Magic Johnson, quitting wasn't easy. It's hard when you... love an organization the way I love this organization. It's hard when you love a person like I love Jeannie. And I, I don't want to disappoint her. I don't want to, you know, we love Lou, you know, so I got to make a decision, right? Decision was leave. Well, having regrets, you can be a waste of time, but mm -hmm. this one I think I would regret. How would you feel if you missed out on a business opportunity that could have made you millions or billions of dollars? Well, one man decided to get out on the ground floor of what's now the richest company in the world. And as Paul Johnson reports, he doesn't regret it at all. Living the quiet life in Pahrump, Nevada, 84-year-old Ronald Wayne happily looks back on a life of adventure. I had a crystal radio when I was a kid, you know, tinkering around with that. A self-taught computer engineer, Wayne worked in Nevada's gaming industry and by the mid-70s had landed in Silicon Valley, where he met two young 20-somethings who wanted to launch a new computer company with him. They were taking business computers and converting them into personal computers. In his 40s by then, Wayne had already been burned by the startup thing. And fearing another costly flop, he had the others buy him out for $800. They all understood why I took my name off the contract. There was no dispute about it, no antagonism. Nobody ever diddled me out of anything. I, whatever I did, I did for my own choice. If you haven't guessed by now, the two young men were the two Steves, Jobs and Wozniak. And the company they'd founded together was Apple Computer. Apple's total value this week was approximately $940 billion. If Ronald Wayne had hung on to his 10% share, that would be $94 billion. Wozniak, anybody can get along with. Uh, I would have had difficulties getting along with jobs. I could see that from the beginning. But if you're expecting to hear a whimper of regret here, you won't find it. 
in Wayne's World, following your heart and building a legacy of innovation and respect is the biggest fortune anyone can hope for. I've never regretted my decision for one moment. If I had stayed with them through the Apple Corporation phase, I probably would have wound up the richest man in the cemetery. Paul Johnson, Global News. And what good is that? <laughs> the, uh, that he uses a Samsung though instead of an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Microsoft computer. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get a last look at weather before we sign off here. So just a chance of showers overnight. Really, it, the next band of rain pushes on shore tomorrow, but heaviest will be in the afternoon. But it will be on and off. All right, thanks very much. Thank you for watching, folks. Have a good night.